This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, let's uh, take a few moments to go to the Lord in prayer to ask His guidance and direction as we study. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for this opportunity to study Your Word this morning. We thank You for the freedom that we have in this nation to gather, to freely assemble, to teach Your Word, to proclaim the truth of the Gospel, that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, undiminished deity, united with true humanity for the purpose of going to the cross to die as our substitute, that we might have eternal life by simply trusting or believing in Him. Father, we thank You that You have provided all things for us in our position in Christ, that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and that we have a portfolio of spiritual assets that goes far beyond anything we could ever imagine. Father, as we study Your Word, we pray that You would challenge us with the things we study, that we may gain a greater understanding and appreciation for all that You have done for us and provided for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation 1. Revelation 1. Now, last Sunday, as we got into this, I I stopped, back up, synthesized a little bit, worked through the overall structure of Revelation. In the introduction, the first chapter, we really have two sections. You have the introduction... Of the to the book itself, which is in the first seven verses. Then you have the prelude, or in the next section, which deals with the commission, the command, and the commission for John to write down what he what he sees. In the introduction, we went through the first seven verses. We saw in the preface that this is a revelation, a disclosure an unveiling of specific information from Jesus Christ. It's, it's been given to him by God, and he is disclosing it or exhibiting it to John. He does it by means of an angel. That's important to understand in terms of the role that angels play in the giving of revelation. He communicates, the first verse says, communicates it to John by sending an angel. John bears witness to what he is given, and then we're told that there's a blessing, special blessing in verse 3 for those who teach the Word, teach the book of Revelation, exposit it, those who hear it and heed it. Then there's a salutation in verses 4 and 5. It's from John, but it comes from the throne of God, from the triune God. It is from from He who is and who was and is to come, 
from the seven spirits who are before his throne, a title for the fullness of the Holy Spirit in this age, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. The theme is given in verse 6, and that is that he is coming with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, even they who pierced him. A reference to Zechariah's prophecy that at the second coming, the Jews would see him whom they, whom they pierced. And then there's a statement of authentication in verse 7, that this indeed comes from God. And verse 7 refers to God the Father. And this is indicated by the fact that he is called the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Two terms in that verse. Uh, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Lord God and Almighty are terms that always refer to God the Father. Now, the reason people get confused over that verse, and there are many who want to make it apply to the Lord Jesus Christ, is because the previous verse talks about Jesus coming in the clouds. And in the old King James Version, there were, were some textual problems, and some scribe along the way inserted, uh, after Alpha and Omega, the phrase, the first and the last, and took out the word God. So that the old King James read, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Now that's a title in the, in the book of Revelation that usually refers to Jesus. And then it says, said the Lord. Well, if you have Lord as opposed to Lord God, that again seems to suggest Jesus rather than God the Father. Because of that emphasis in the old King James, that led to a lot of confusion. But it's a statement of authentication from God the Father. Because it is God the Father who is giving the revelation to Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ who then communicates it both personally and by means of an angel to the Apostle John. We've seen that the book of Revelation has a threefold division, as seen in verse 19. John is told by the Lord Jesus Christ to write the things which you have seen. That's chapter 1. The things which are... The chapters 2 and 3, and the things which will take place after these things. So chapter 1 focuses on that initial commission to write, his initial vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. The things that are, present tense, emphasizes the church age, the seven churches of the church age, representing the cycles of history in the church age. And then uh, in the tribulation, uh, period. That's the things that will take place after this, after the end of the church age, where you have the tribulation, the millennial kingdom, millennial kingdom, and then the eternal state. That's the outline. That's the overview, the structure of Revelation. If you have that, you've got the book. So that orients you. Now, when we're in this second section, which is the commission to write the book, we have the initial command to write these things down, given in verses 9 uh, through 11. We saw this last time. The author is described in verse 9, John, your brother and co-participant in the uh, adversity, kingdom, and endurance of Jesus Christ. And this refers, as I pointed out last time, to the dynamics of the spiritual life. This is crucial. What undergirds revelation is this mandate to pay attention to the spiritual life, 
because of where we are going, what, what we frequently refer to here as our pers- the personal sense of our eternal destiny, that we have a destiny to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ in the millennial kingdom and on into eternity, and the training ground right now is today. This is it. When you die and go to be face-to-face with the Lord, your training is over with. The capacities that you develop during your time on earth is what you take with you into eternity. Some of you are going to have tremendous capacity. Others may not have any capacity. It all depends on what you do with the doctrine you learn during your time on earth. So John emphasizes this. The emphasis isn't on his apostolic authority. The emphasis is on his relationship with the other believers as a co-participant in the spiritual life dynamics of this age. Because the authority in this book is derived not from John. He's not writing as an apostle. He doesn't say, I, John, the pastor, the elder, an apostle to you. He is delivering a revelation, disclosure that comes from Jesus Christ and from God the Father. So there's different dynamics. He says that he's on the island of Patmos. So these are his circumstances. We learn about his person in the first part of the verse and the dynamics of the spiritual life based on facing adversity and enduring. We endure by continuing to apply the problem-solving devices, the uh, stress busters, to all of the tests in life. In preparation for the kingdom, that's why this is uh, there. And last time I said this is what's called a hendiatrist which indicates that these three terms, tribulation, kingdom, and I mean uh, adversity, kingdom, and endurance, should be linked together. John, your brother and co-participant in the adversity, kingdom, endurance, which are in Jesus. That's the idea. These, this is a threefold uh, term that represents the dynamic of the spiritual life of this age. And he says he's on the island that is called... Patmos. And he's there because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ and the uh, double use of the preposition here in, in, term, in both phrases be, should be translated because of the Word of God and because of the testimony of Jesus Christ. So they're not linked together. This is an indication that he's teaching the Word of God. He's teaching about who Jesus Christ is as the second person of the Trinity and therefore... He, is, uh, he has been arrested and exiled to Patmos. Now, there it is. You've been waiting for this. Uh, this is the approach to Patmos. It's a small island uh, that's shaped it like a crescent. And, you, and the two horns of the crescent face eastward, and so it forms a perfect harbor. And this is the approach to to, to Patmos. In fact, in the middle of the island, as you can see here on the uh, on the left side, it gets pretty low. And it's, uh, but you also have these high mountains, and there's of course many more people living there today than the time John was there. But it's a beautiful location, looking out on that gorgeous uh, Aegean. And this is a picture of the hillside where allegedly, according to tradition, John was in a cave when he received. The revelation. Now, I don't know if he was in a cave or not. Scripture doesn't say where he was. 
He could have been just sitting up on a hillside. He could have been uh, down on the beach. He could have been anywhere. He had free reign on the island and could have, could have been just about anywhere when he received the revelation. The area that uh, I'm showing here by the right in this area here is where the cave is located that was uh, uh, allegedly where John received the revelation. Of course, uh, one of the things that the Eastern Orthodox Church has done is to erect uh, churches and chapels and buildings over everything they consider a site where somebody in the Bible did something. And uh, they revere the site. They think the site is important, that it's holy, that somehow by going there you get grace or it, it, it has some kind of spiritual value, which is not biblical at all. It's that mysticism that's part of uh, all the Eastern Orthodox uh, churches, whether you, the reason uh, the umbrella term is Eastern Orthodox, but it's a state church. So you have Syrian Orthodox and you have Russian Orthodox and Greek Orthodox, and down in Egypt you would have the Coptic Orthodox. But that's they're, they're state churches, and each of these uh, regions or states has a patriarch that is uh, the head of that particular uh, area and responsibility. So it doesn't have that unified papal authority. That was one of the reasons the Eastern Church split from the West, is because they rejected the idea that one man was the vicar of Christ, the representative of Christ on the earth, and they have authority vested in this group of individuals known as, as patriarchs. But the Eastern Church is much more mystical than the Roman Church, which in itself has many elements of mysticism. But it's much more mystical. Now, we like to go to these places not because they have any kind of value, not because they're holy, but because we understand that the Bible, the truths of the Bible, are not separated from space-time history. That these are not otherworldly events but that they transpired at a particular place in time under a particular set of circumstances and that you can't separate the truth of Scripture from historical reality. And so we go because we want to understand the backgrounds, the isagogics, the framework in which, under which Scripture was given. So this is the island of Patmos. Just to give you an idea of what it looks like today, it's a uh, not a very large place, but there are, I was surprised by the large number of homes and, and vehicles there. It's a great vacation spot. This is looking up at the area where the cave is located. I think it's uh, just right in, the, in this grove of trees here is where uh, the cave would be located. This is right on top of the cave. We didn't get a chance to go in that morning because the... Um, we, we stopped. At, there was a large seating area, amphitheater, uh, just outside, and we stopped and heard Dr. Ed Heinsohn give a 45-minute overview of the book of Revelation, which was excellent. But had we known that at 10 o'clock that morning the uh, Orthodox uh, Church was going to have services, it was a Sunday morning, uh, we would have gone there first. But we missed out by the time we got there. They were having services inside the 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 cave, so we couldn't get inside. I tend to think that John was probably sitting in a place something like this, beautiful location, looking out when 
looking out over the harbor, over the Aegean, when suddenly the, he heard this loud voice behind him that's described in verse 10. Now, I want you to pay attention to what's going on here. It's, we've got these verses from 10 down through uh, the end of the chapter, which as we read through them and as we study through them, we'll probably be here at least a couple of weeks. We tend to slow down. But this happened in less time than it takes to read it. And I want you to understand the dynamics of what's going on. This is a powerful situation. Imagine what it would be like if you were just sitting out on a hillside reflecting on the doctrine in your soul and this were to happen. It takes place in just a matter of, of seconds. And John is there and he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And we, I pointed out that this doesn't mean that he was filled with the Spirit, although that certainly would be true. That's a, an understood condition of an apostle receiving revelation. But this shouldn't be translated with a capital S, but with a lowercase s. And it has the idea of being in the spiritual realm. That is, he is in a situation where he is able to uh, see into uh, the spiritual realm. And God, as it were, sort of opens up this um, curtain between the dimensions so that John is able to see into heaven, he's able to see into the future, and he's able to see that which is normally unseen. And that's the idea of that phrase. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day on a Sunday morning when he hears behind him a loud voices of a trumpet. He is just taken by, by surprise. He's sitting down on, on this hillside or perhaps on a beach or maybe even in the cave, as church tradition suggests, when suddenly he hears this loud, booming voice as of a trumpet. And it just catches him, startles him. And you, you would think that with this kind of a voice, it would just reverberate through him. And since it's the Lord Jesus Christ, you would think that his soul and his body would just reverberate with the vibrations of this voice. It grabs his attention. And he suddenly jumps up and he turns around and he looks and he sees something. Now, while he's jumping up and turning around, he hears the first part of what the Lord says to him. And that just takes a couple of seconds. And what he hears is the initial commission to write. And Jesus says to him, now what you see, write in a book, send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Now, that just took probably about five seconds to say that. And so while John's standing up and turning around, he heard that. And then he says, then I turned. So while he's here, it's all going on at the same time. He turns to hear this voice. What in the world is this? It's grabbed his attention. I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And when I turned, I saw something. And he, see, he doesn't see the trees that are around him or the cave. He's seeing into another dimension, and he's, what he sees is seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of these, he sees a, this person, unlike anything he's seen before. He has never, I mean, he was one of the disciples that was closest to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he never saw him like this, not even in resurrection body. This is a unique vision of Jesus Christ having to do with his eschatological role, not his original role at the first advent.
And he sees one like a son of man. And then he describes how he's dressed. But remember, this hits him all at one time. In one second, he's taking all of this in before he hears this reiteration of the commission. See, we don't see that here the commission to write repeated again until we get down to verse uh, 17. The last part of 17, when Jesus begins to speak again. So all we have here from 12 down to 17a is a description of what John sees. But he takes this in in just a second. But it takes us a while longer to go through the details. He sees these seven golden lampstands and this figure in the middle that is just a brilliant white burning glow. It's reminiscent of Jesus as he appears in the... Old Testament in the Shekinah glory over the tabernacle, this brilliant white light, but he can see the figure that's in this brilliant light, and he can make out the details. And he gives the description of him. He's got hair that's, that's not just white, it's, it's, it's a brilliant white. I don't know if you've noticed this. If you've got a computer, you go down to the uh, Staples, and you, you're going to buy a package of printer paper. They now have numbers on there that tell you the brilliance of the whiteness. I mean, this is as as white and as bright as it gets, is what he saw with the Lord Jesus Christ. His head and his hair are white. He says, white like wool, white as snow. And to understand that, you have to go to the Old Testament. Not only that, his eyes are like a flame of fire. Once again, you have to go to the Old Testament. It says that um, his... um, Feet are like fine brass, and it's really not brass. When I think of brass, I think of something that's sort of gold-colored. And even when you you guys in the military, even when you'd polish up your brass pretty well, it would have a, you know, almost a white glow to it. But this, we don't know what the metal is. The word that's used here, we'll see, is only used here in the New Testament. It's not used in extra-biblical literature. It's some kind of brilliant, white, refined, precious metal. But the idea has, it's brilliant. It's almost white in its glow. So again and again you have this emphasis on white coming across. Uh, his voice is like the sound of many waters. Again, you have to go to the Old Testament. Now, all of these images go back to Old Testament eschatology passages in Daniel and Ezekiel. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Not the Machaira sword of the Spirit, but this is the Rompia. This is the sword that is used in an offensive action. His uh, sharp two-edged sword, his countenance is like the sun shining in all of its strength. So you think about looking at the sun, you just want to close your eyes and shield them with your hand. But it's this eye of brilliant whiteness that just strikes John almost physically. It's almost like being hit with something. And he sees this and falls at his feet, at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, as if dead. Now that's the picture. Now what does all this mean? What's the significance of this? So let's, let's back up and take some time to, to look at the details of what he is seeing and why Jesus Christ appears to him In this way. John says, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. Now, if you've noticed something, there's a little incongruity in that phrase because you don't look at a voice. So he utilizes a 
figure of speech called a metonymy of effect for cause. Metonymy, that's spelled M-E-T-O-N-Y-M-Y. Metonymy. And a metonymy is when you say one thing and you put it in place of something else. So here he's talking about the effect for the cause. The cause of the voice would be the person speaking. You don't look at a voice. A voice isn't something physical. What he's saying is that he was turning to look at the person who produces the voice that speaks to him. So he... uh, while he hears this loud voice as of a trumpet, trumpets were used to announce things, he stands up and turns, or if he was already standing, then he would just simply turn to look at the voice that he heard. And then that next phrase should be translated, having turned. Let me see if I have it up here. Okay, the first time it's used, he says, I turned, and that's the Greek verb epistrepho. Epistrepho, E-P-I-S-T-R-E-P-H-O. Now, I have to spell these things out. You can read it. In the old days, I'd spell it out while I was writing it. I keep getting uh, emails from people who just listen to tapes and saying, would you please spell the Greek so I can get it down? So that's why I take the time to spell it, even though you can see it. Aorist active indicative. Now, the aorist tense simply summarizes this action without reference to its uh, beginning, its end, or its duration. It just simply refers to it as a simple past action, I turned. Uh, The word epistrepho means to turn around, to go back, to change direction. Thus, it can mean to change belief or the course of conduct. Uh, Sometimes it's almost parallel to the concept of repent, to change your mind. But here it simply refers to the physical act of turning around, and it's used twice. The first time is when it says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And the second time that that it shows up is when it says, And having turned, which is really a poor translation. It is an aorist uh, active participle. An aorist active participle without an article, which means it's adverbial. And there are various nuances to an adverbial participle, but the but one that fits here is that this is a temporal adverbial participle. It says, and when I turn, that's how it should be translated. I, I turned to look at the voice that spoke to me, and when I turned, I saw. Or you could say, and after I turned, I saw. But it has that that temporal uh, nuance to it. It's not nebulous like having turned. It's after I turned or when I turned, I, I saw uh, seven golden lampstands. Now, the Bible always interprets itself. When we see this, any kind of symbol in Scripture, we're not left to simply contemplate our navel and try to figure out what this means. And if you look, down to the end of the chapter, you will see that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to tell us what these symbols mean. In verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So these seven lampstands represent 
the seven churches that John is to send the uh, this book to, the seven churches in Asia that have just been listed in verse 11. So in the midst of them, now there, I understand in reading this, I think that they're in a circle. And Jesus is standing in their midst. Now to understand the lampstand, we have to go back and understand this in the framework of Scripture. The word here that is used for lamp, lampstand, is the Greek word lukneos. Let me write this on the overhead. Lukneos. Looks like this in the Greek. L-U-C-H-N-I-A-S. This is different from this word, Lukenos, L-U-C-H-N-O-S, which refers to a lamp. This would be an oil lamp, and a Lukenos, A-S ending, is the lamp stand on which you would place the lamp for illumination. This is not a candlestick. This is a golden lampstand. The fact that it is golden indicates the high value that is placed by God upon the church and upon each individual church. And we will see that even though some of these churches are filled with carnality and tolerating false doctrine, each of them is still represented by this golden lampstand. That indicates that there can be rank carnality, and even false doctrine, but that doesn't mean the church is not a genuine church and that the people in the church are not true believers. So we're back to that issue of grace again. Now, that doesn't mean they were all believers, but it means that they are viewed, and we'll see this when we get into the seven letters in chapters 2 and 3, that these churches are viewed as being made up of believers They're being warned. They're being told to get with it in their spiritual life, not to get saved. So when you look at the letters to to Pergamum, and where they're tolerating the false doctrine of of Balaam and the doctrine of the uh, Nicolaitans, when you get into the uh, letter to Thyatira, where they're tolerating the false prophetess Jezebel, and we'll have to get into what all this means, and you get into the letter to Sardis, where uh, almost everyone in the church has defiled their garments because of the carnality and the sin in their midst. And you get into the, the church of Laodicea, where they're lukewarm, and that means ineffective and uh, unusable, and God wants to vomit them out of their mouth. They're still believers, because the solution, the challenge isn't to get saved, The challenge is to get with it in their spiritual life. And what we see here is the beginning of this imagery that is going to dominate the next two chapters. Jesus is in the midst of these seven golden lampstands. He is in the midst of the church. He is moving in the midst of these local congregations. Now, when we look at the lamps, let's understand this biblically in terms of the framework for lamps. First of all, I think the first four points deal with the Old Testament background for understanding a lamp and lampstand. First point, in Israel they had a seven-branched single lampstand in the tabernacle. It had seven branches 
one lampstand. Okay, the picture we have here is not of the candelabra that's used in the in the tabernacle. That was one lampstand with seven bowls. This is seven individual lampstands. Now, this seven-branch, single-based lampstand in the tabernacle and temple was used to represent Israel. This was used on their coins. It was used in uh, on pottery. It was used on other things to as a representation of the nation Israel, just as today we would use an eagle to represent the United States. Uh, this was a the seven lampstand of the tabernacle was used to represent the nation Israel because of their role in the Word of God to be the light of the world. And we're studying that on Wednesday night in our Bible class on Genesis that God calls out Abraham and Abraham and through Abraham there to be a blessing to the world. Why? Because it is through Israel that revelation and illumination comes. So that's what the lampstand pictures is this illumination of, of, of the truth of God to the world. And so Exodus 37:17 gives you the description of that lampstand. He, uh, he also made the lampstand of pure gold, of hammered work. He made the lampstand. Its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs, and its flowers were of the same piece, one unity. So Israel is represented as a united nation. Not nations, I said united nation, singular. One nation, and the sevenfold bowl represents the complete completeness or sufficiency of the revelation given through the nation Israel. So the lampstand begins, this idea of illumination through the one nation begins in Exodus. Then the second point is that the lampstand is removed from Israel to Babylon with the exile in 586 B.C. when Israel was conquered by the Babylonians. The temple was destroyed. The first temple was destroyed. And the lampstands removed to Babylon. Second Chronicles 36, verses 17 to 21. Second Chronicles 36, verses 17 to 21. The spiritual failure of the nation led to the removal of the lampstand to Babylon. Then third, we see the restoration or the partial restoration of the lampstand under Zerubbabel because the whole nation doesn't return. But Zerubbabel has a vision of a lampstand in Zechariah chapter 4. In Zechariah chapter 4, verse 11, He has this vision, and he answers and says to him, What are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and at its left? So you see, he has this vision of this lampstand. There's these two olive trees, and there are these pipes coming from the olive trees that are feeding the lampstand, so there's an eternal flame. And it is a picture of Israel being fully restored in the millennial kingdom because of these pipes that are going to the... uh, uh, going to the olive trees, there's this continuous flow of oil, and it's a picture of the restoration of the nation and the restoration of the kingdom under the Messiah. So you have this, this imagery of this lampstand that goes throughout the Scripture related to Israel, but it is seven bowls on one lampstand, not seven lampstands. So our fourth point is to recognize that the Old Testament lampstand was represented one nation. 
Israel. The unity of that one nation, Israel. Now, the fifth point is the lampstand was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. The lampstand in Israel represents the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate revelation of God. In John 8, 12 and John 9, 5, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So the lampstand is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ in his role as the one who reveals God the Father and reveals his plan to man. This is seen in John 1, 12. No one has seen the Father at any time, but the only begotten has exegeted or revealed him to us. Now, Jesus is the physical representation of that lamp and and the antitype of that lamp at the first advent. But when Jesus was killed, when he was crucified, and he went into the grave, we're getting a very weird sound down here out of the speakers. Uh, Okay, it stopped. When Jesus was crucified, his body was put in the grave, he rose from the dead, and then he ascended to heaven so that his physical human body, resurrection body, is now seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. What replaced it on the earth? The body of Christ, the church. We as a body of Christ replace the physical body of Christ on the earth, and we are the representative of Christ on the earth. So people are to look at the church and see Christ. This is why one reason character matters in the Christian Christian life, in the church age, not a legalistic, uh, overt uh, change, but a real change from the inside out. So Jesus is the light. Now the church is represented as the light of the world in these seven independent lampstands. Why? Because each church is autonomous. It's not, it can't be one lampstand because there, though there is one church, it is not, there's not a hierarchy of churches. This is a great passage to show that you don't have a unified uh, hierarchical church in the Scripture. But each individual church, each individual autonomous body of believers is responsible for its own teaching, its own conduct, its own government, and its, and its own uh, application of the Word of God. So there are seven lampstands here. So in point number six, the present dis- in the present dispensation, Christ has been replaced by the church, His body, which means that it is part of the responsibility of the church, to be a distributor of revelation and truth. And this is done through the communication of Bible doctrine. Point number seven. The fact that there are seven lampstands represent, the number seven represents fullness or completion or sufficiency. Just as there were seven lampstands with Israel indicating that God had provided everything for them and they were, that was a sufficient organization and basis for revelation in the Old Testament. So, too, in the New Testament, there is a sufficiency in the church. 
So these seven churches are going to be, be a sufficient revelation and representation of uh, every church and represent every church in the church age. So all, every church fits one of these uh, patterns that, uh, are repre- that are mentioned in these churches. Now, if we look at verse 13, we see that in the midst of the seven lampstands, John sees one like the Son of Man. Now, we have to stop here because we have to understand what Son of Man refers to. We've talked about this many times in the past, so I'm not going to go through this in extensive detail. But the term Son of is a Hebraism. To describe, it's an adjectival phrase describing something about a person's character. So that in, in Hebrew, if you, somebody was a murderer, they would be called the son of a murderer. If they were a liar, they'd be called the son of a liar. If they were a fool, they'd be called the son of a fool. Yeah, Judas is, is a lost unbeliever. So he's called son of perdition from the same root as those that are, are, are lost, those who perish in John 3.16. So Son of God means deity. Son of Man means humanity. Jesus Christ is truly human. The term Son of Man indicates the fact that He is true humanity. He is the second Adam. He is everything that Adam would have been, could have been, and should have been if he had not disobeyed God and not uh, disobeyed and eaten of the fruit. So Jesus is a Son of Man, but the term Son of Man is a strong messianic term that seems to have heavy connotations for Israel. And we see that in the Gospels. The term Son of Man is used by Jesus over 70 times to refer to himself, and it has this this strong Jewish emphasis. But it's not restricted to that. I want to go back and look at how it's used. And the, the, the Old Testament passage is in Daniel chapter 7. So we'll look at Daniel's, Daniel 7, 9 through 14. We'll skip around a little bit. Focus on just a couple of these verses. Daniel is having a vision of the end of the tribulation period, when there will be a judgment. That's what he's looking at. And he said, and he has just traced in the earlier part of Daniel 7 these various kingdoms of man that are pictured as these wild, voracious beasts. And you have the the bear and the, the lion of Babylon. You have the lopsided bear that represents the Medes and the Persians. You have the four-headed leopard that represents the Greeks. And you have this other creature that comes along that represents Rome and the revived Roman Empire. And so all the kingdoms of man, all of the best of man in terms of his uh, political empires and political unity and that which we often uh, value in terms of their contributions to human history, especially the Romans and the Greeks, are, are all pictured by God as, as being bestial at the very core of their nature. And these kingdoms are all going to be destroyed by the Son of Man when He comes and He sets up His kingdom, contrasting the genuine human real human, minus sin, minus carnality, the real human nature of the millennial kingdom versus the bestial nature of all human political systems. Oh yeah, and that includes the U.S. Just don't get too excited about the election. 
just remember that from God's perspective, all human cultures and all political systems are ultimately bestial. You can't get a perfect one, so don't get too uh, idealistic in your political views. Now, when Daniel sees the vision, he says, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Now, the Ancient of Days is God the Father. The Ancient of Days takes his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. Now, what does that sound like? See, there's a lot of similarity here. This is God the Father. But you have the same description used of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. This is why, remember, the Trinity is close. So we have to be careful to distinguish the members of the Trinity and not misidentify the Father as the Son or the Son as the Father. So his vesture is like white snow, the hair of his head is like pure wool, his throne is a blaze with flames. And this is the same imagery that we see in, in John's vision, this brightness, this brilliance, this glow, this mention of fire and, and, and judgment. Wheels are like a burning fire. Verse 10, a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads and myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were open. So this is a picture of God the Father as, in a, as a judge before a courtroom. And that's the idea. And all of this picture of the whiteness and the brilliance and the fire has to do with his role as a judge. Now... Skip down to verse 13. Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Now, what does that sound like? Remember Revelation 1-7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. See, it's that same imagery. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. So that is not given until the end of the tribulation period. He is not functioning as a king now. The kingdom is being prepared for him. We're not in the kingdom, but it's in preparation. A glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So he sets up his kingdom. But there's this element of judgment. Now, in John 5.22... We're told by Jesus that the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. So there's a transfer of judicial authority from God the Father to God the Son at the second coming that goes with His his responsibilities as King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, all of this sets us up for understanding not only the dynamics of the end of chapter 1, but what is happening in terms of our spiritual life. Because the picture here is of Jesus Christ, not as a king, and even though he's clothed in a garment down to the feet, which indicates, uh, and some people want to take this as priestly function, he's girded about his chest with a golden band. This is a picture of royalty, a picture uh, of aristocracy, a picture of a royal official who has a claim to authority. And the picture that we see with his hair uh, white as snow, white like wool, his eyes like a flame of fire. All of this in, uh, is imagery of judgment. Jesus Christ moves in the church age as a judge. This is part of his role as a priest. Not as a priest king, but as a priest judge. Why? 
Because he is, uh, his business today in the church age is to purify the church because we are to rule and reign with him how? As priests in the coming kingdom. And we'll get into that next time. But see, that's what's setting this up is Jesus, the, the underlying foundation to church age sanctification is to purify us mentally, spiritually, to prepare us, not just positionally. See, positionally you're sanctified. But experientially is where you are prepared to rule and reign with Jesus Christ as priest kings, royal priests, during the millennial kingdom. And this is the imagery here of the Son of Man functioning in this priest-king role in the midst of the churches. So you see one like the Son of Man clothed with a garment down to the feet, this long robe going down to the feet, is a picture of, of, of royal authority or at least official authority. Although it's used in Exodus 28.4 of the robe of the high priest, that is this word poderes. Let me write it up here on the overhead. Poderes. You know the word podiatrist for feet? Well, that's the root here. But when you get this ending, poderes, that indicates something that's, that's that it's almost adjectival, footly. It's not podos for foot, but poderes, which indicates something that reaches. Let me see how you spell it. P-O-D-E-R-E-S. That reaches to the feet. Okay? So, it's used of the high priest's robe, but it's also used in Ezekiel 9.11 for the clothing of this man who comes to Ezekiel with the inkhorn. It's a scene dealing with judgment. This individual represents judgment. So it's, it has to do with the kind of a garment that an official, uh, someone with high authority would be wearing. The same thing with the go, uh, golden band. See, the high priest wore in, on, his, uh, 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 on his robe, it was, it was a, an element of the robe was, was woven with gold thread. But this is a gold band itself. And again, it indicates not priestly authority. What it represents is the authority of, a, of an official, someone who is in a high, high place of authority. So while there are overtones of the priest idea here, it has more to do with judgment. So we have the Jesus Christ as the priest judge. Now, there's a, another example of this given in the Old Testament, and that's in Daniel 10.5. And in Daniel 10, Daniel is having another vision, and in this vision he looks up, and behold, there's a certain man clothed in linen whose waist was girded with the gold of Uphaz. So this, again, indicates this person who's coming. Context, again, is judgment, and it is, uh, it's an official now. Now, I'm stopping here at 10.5, but 10.6 we'll look at in a minute, and it also feeds into this, because this person has eyes like a flame. So you see this same kind of connection with this picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 14 we read, His head and his hair were white like wool, white as snow. And the whiteness indicates purity, brilliance. And this was not seen at the first advent, either in pre- or post-resurrection. This is, just appears at the second 
uh, second coming. If Jesus had appeared like this at the first coming, it would have been noted. But the first, this picture is a picture of him as a judge and is related to this, in the same sense to the picture of the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7, who has hair that's, that's white, uh, white like wool also. So that's the imagery. Don't confuse your advents. His head and his hair are white like wool, it's white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. Uh, it indicates that which knows everything. His eyes are like a flame. They pierce everything. He sees everything. He knows everything. Nothing escapes his judgment. And this phrase, uh, eyes like a flame of fire, uh, is taken from Daniel 10.6, referring to this messenger that appears, whose body's like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze. Notice the similarity. We see these same things over and over again. So to understand the New Testament, we have to understand the Old Testament. Revelation 1.15 continues the description. His feet are like fine brass. Actual, uh, some translations say burnished bronze. The Greek word here is kalkalibanon. Uh, kalkalibanon. C-H-A-L-K-O-L-I-B-A-N-O-N. And it's not, as I pointed out earlier, it's not found anywhere else outside of the book of Revelation. It refers to some sort of refined metal or alloy that's, that's brilliant, almost white, something that's been refined in a fiery furnace. And Jesus was refined on the cross. That's where He went through judgment. And because He was judged for our sins... He is now qualified to be our judge. We are judged by a priest judge who has been tested in all points as we are, yet without sin. We are judged by a peer so that he has gone through what we have gone through, yet without sin. And he is qualified to judge us because of what he went through on the cross, where he died on the cross and bore the penalty for our sins. Then we're told in the end of this verse, that he had a voice like the sound of many waters. And that is a reference to Ezekiel 43.2. Behold, the glory of God, the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters. A loud voice, an overwhelming voice, a voice that reverberated and vibrated every part of John's being and called him to attention. Now, next time, we'll come to start with verse 16, and we'll get into the symbolism of the seven stars and the angels of the seven churches and the rest of his appearance as it sets us up for understanding his role in the midst of the seven churches, because every one of these descriptions is referred to again in those seven letters to the seven churches, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be presented with this vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our high priest, our Savior, but also he is our judge. He is the one who will judge us, evaluate us at the the judgment seat of Christ. But even now he is moving in our midst to purify us in preparation for that judgment and in preparation to rule and reign with him as royal priests 
during the millennial kingdom and eternity. But all of this is based first and foremost on salvation. And if you're here this morning and you're not sure of your salvation, or you're uncertain of your eternal destiny, this is your opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you have to do is to put your trust in Jesus Christ. You don't have to change your life. You don't have to clean it up, purify it, uh, do any of those things. That's somebody else's job. Your job is to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and at that instant you're saved. At that instant you receive eternal life. You're justified, and you are uh, adopted into the royal family of God, and you will gain a salvation that you can never, ever lose. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we study today, realizing that you have a plan and a purpose for our lives, and it's not focused just on time, but on eternity, on your plan for us as members of the royal uh, body of believers, royal aristocracy, for our rule and reign with you in the millennial kingdom and eternity. So, Father, we thank you for this time together. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.